What do you do for sales training and team building exercises? What do you do for customer service training and team building exercises? I know you're trying all kinds of things and there's some good stuff out there. But I swear, if anyone ever asked me to do another trust fall, my brain's gonna explode. So let's come up with something different. I've been trying to find something different for a while. And I thought, well, why not let's come up with a sales training game or a customer service training game, something fun that everyone can get into and that they can laugh about and challenge each other and poke each other a little bit and feel some of the emotional ups and downs that you get when you're in customer service and sales. So I went to a game jam uh, headed up by the local regional economic development group here in Columbia and Boone County, Missouri. And I met uh, a group of game developers and we had so much fun that we ended up creating a game called Starship Junkyard, which is a great and hilarious way to do team building for your businesses, for your sales teams, for your customer service teams. And it's turned out to be just a great family and friends game too. Something you can sit down and play for half an hour or an hour or a great pub game. It's hilarious. It's called Starship Junkyard, and you can find it on Facebook at uh, the Starship Junkyard, the card game. You can buy it on thegamecrafter.com. Go to thegamecrafter.com and look up Starship Junkyard and buy a copy and play it. It's hilarious. So try that for your next team building exercise. Try that for your next sales training meeting. Sit down and play Starship Junkyard and you will be happy you did. Go check it out on Facebook, Twitter. Go buy the game at thegamecrafter.com. The Starship Junkyard, the card game. Thank you. If you don't know Clenora, She's going to tell you a little something about herself. One of the neat things about being in Columbia, Missouri, which is kind of a small city, is you get to bump into people. And, uh, you know, it wasn't until after I'd known Clenora for a little while from going to her house at having yard sales and visiting in the front yard that I realized who Clenora was. So tell me something about yourself because there's not – not too many people who've had some of the international exposure you've had with some of your work, especially your groundbreaking work on Africana womanism and your groundbreaking work on the Emmett Till case. So I don't know where you want to get started, but what what are what is on your mind now? What well, same thing. It's still current. I was telling you the other day, you know, mm-hmm. it's nothing old because you know we haven't arrived yet, you know. So we're still working with it. Uh, I came here uh, from the University of Iowa, where I was a Ford Fellow, National Ford Fellow in the state of Iowa. The only one in the state of Iowa was a Ford Fellow. But at any rate, uh, my doctoral dissertation was the first to establish the lynching of Emmett Till as the true catalyst of the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. That wasn't easy. Uh, right. for, my, my committee said, you know, everybody thought that I would be doing something on black women writers because I had gotten a contract prior to going to Iowa in '85. I'd gotten a contract in January with my co-author at the University of uh, Utah to uh, co-author the first book on Toni Morrison, who later won the Nobel Prize for Literature. 
So it even was in the eighties, she was making a big impact. Wasn't she? <clears throat> Most Amazing. definitely, mm-hmm. yeah. In fact, uh, Beloved. Uh, that's where my book stops with Beloved. Mm-hmm. It won the uh, Pulitzer Prize for that year, and you know that's just uh, that's just the beginning of it. She brought the Nobel Prize back to the U.S. after. Uh, 35 years of absenteeism, so wow. she's very prominent, as you well know. Mm-hmm. So uh, people uh, assumed, and uh, probably uh, justifiably, that I would be doing my dissertation on black uh, writers, black women writers, maybe, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess I was, until I realized that I just can't, uh, I just can't kick this kid, you know. I mm-hmm. had been having uh, this recurring dream periodically, not all the time, but periodically, uh, since uh, my childhood. I was younger than Emmett, of course, and my father was an inspector with the Illinois Central Railroad. I'm from Memphis, Tennessee, mm-hmm. and uh, so I remember his coming home and telling my mother that's all they're talking about from Chicago to uh, New Orleans was the murder of this kid. Wow. And, uh, you know, I'm listening. You know, our kids eavesdropping. Uh-huh. I'm not supposed to hear that because uh-huh. I'm too young, you know. Right. But I heard it, and all I wanted to do was to sleep because every time I would uh, wake up, i think about this thing, and it was such a horror that I just wanted to sleep again. Well, anyway, that, that thing, you know, just kept coming back and everything. So right. I was the uh, founding chair of Africana Studies at Delaware State University, mm-hmm. and I had invited a mother there um, uh, back in 1985, is before going to Iowa. Uh, and she was one of the mothers of those kids that were uh, killed in Atlanta. That's another whole story. But that got me back on the trail, right? To say. Right. Uh, at any rate, and you started uh, thinking about the mothers again, of these kids too, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Again, that the the mother again and the child, the plight of the child, or the children more or less. And so uh, when I went to my committee, and I told them, I said, I just want you to know that uh, I just had a visit down to Memphis for Christmas, and I've decided that I'm not going to write on black women writers as we we all thought I would, I'm going to be writing on Emmett Till as the catalyst of the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. And what my committee and uh, said, chair what? said, How? he said, but now, Lenora, <laughs> now, wait a minute. Um, uh, it has already been established, all historians have agreed that the catalyst of the civil rights movement was Rosa Parks and her refusal to relinquish her seat. I said, well, it's, it's incorrect. Mm-hmm. I said, uh, it's not to take away from Rosa Parks. She'll always be the mother of the movement. King will always be the father of the movement. Mm-hmm. But this kid is the true catalyst. He's the child of the movement. Okay, it started with him. Right. I said he was lynched three months and three days prior to Rosa Parks. Mm-hmm. You probably hear that phrase all the time, but that comes directly from my book. Okay. 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 <laughs> That's a good thing about a book, you know, it's cast in bronze, right? <laughs> so right. anyway, um, I said, in fact, uh, Emmett Till uh, uh, set the stage for the Montgomery bus boycott mm-hmm. because Rosa Parks many years later admitted it was after my dissertation came out in 88 that uh, when someone asked her why didn't she go back uh, when they asked her to go to the back of the bus she said she thought about Emmett and she couldn't go back mm-hmm. you see what I'm saying so at any rate um, so I uh, and they said uh, you know one one of my uh, members he was the chair of, uh, of the English department I was in American studies we had to do American studies if we wanted to do cultural studies I had right. gotten two okay. uh, degrees in British Lit. Okay. But, uh, and a minor in French, Russian, and German. So you see, that wasn't black, any of that. <laughs> <laughs> but at any rate, uh, that's why when I came here, uh, I was hired here by Ellie Raglan. Uh, she's an international Jacques Laconian, and she wanted me to strengthen and diversify the Department of English. Mm-hmm. And so, actually, within uh, less than two years, I had, uh, I had created uh, four syllabi, uh, and it's still very much uh, active. In fact, uh, in uh, 2001, I established the first uh, uh, 
nation's first uh, graduate degree, master's, PhD in English with an Africana concentration. So it started here. It started here in Missouri. With my initiative, (laughs) right. (laughs) Because I wanted that, because most of us, you know, Skip Gates, you know, at Harvard now, my author, my co-author, we're for Samuels at the University of uh, Utah. You know, we all got uh, uh, May Henderson uh, at the University of uh, North Carolina Chapel Hill. We all got PhDs in American Studies. Right. You know, they were at Yale, you know, or wherever. Peppy was this uh, Dr. Samuels at Utah. We both came out of Iowa, and uh, that was what you did. Mm-hmm. But at any rate, he said, uh, what happens if you can't? Can't you, no, the English professor said, why can't you just say that Emmett was a very significant factor in the rise of the civil rights movement? I said, I can't. He said, why mm-hmm. not? I said, he was far more than that. He was the impetus. Mm-hmm. He said, well, what happens if you can't defend the dissertation? I said, it's simple. I don't get a PhD, and I'm willing to take that chance. Right. That's on my website. Exactly. That's how he said yeah. it. In other words, I said, and I'm hoping that you'll take a chance with me mm-hmm. or I'm wasting your time and mine because right. that's what I'm going to do. I knew that. Right. And so they, you know, listened and they said, excuse us for a minute. And I came back and they said, you got it. You know, so that, that's history. Mm-hmm. I did it. And, of course, when I graduated, there were, oh, it was so funny, everybody coming in for the graduation and it was that Saturday morning at 11 o'clock. Of course, I hadn't read the papers. But when I got to the commencement, uh, everybody was saying, oh, it's all in the paper, front page. They had five stories on me in the Iowa and Press Citizen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was great. So anyway, um, so my thing is, uh, that's how it all got started. And uh, I remember when I did go see Mamie on the 6th of January. Isn't it ironic? So that was she died on the Emma 6th. Emmett Till's mother, right? Yeah, Mamie. Mamie. Right. Mm-hmm. She died on the 6th of January. Wow. She died on 6th of January 2002, I think, or three. Mm-hmm. I met her on the 6th of January 1988, mm-hmm. about three or four months before I graduated. Mm-hmm. And she said, well, Clonora, you seem to know everything about Emmett. And I was very pleased. She said, uh, I just have one question. Why did it take you so long to come to me? Uh-huh. I said, because you're the icing for the cake that comes last. You see, I don't feel like, and I don't think it's fair to pull you through all this again. I need to do my research. As and I'm a researcher, sure she was pulled through it many times. Many times. I said, I'm not going to ask you and then what happened and then what happened. I'm going to already know it. Right. She said, but I wish you would do one thing, Clonora. I wish you would say that Emmett allegedly whistled instead of you say he whistled. I said, I can't say that. All my sources verify the fact that Emmett did, in fact, whistle. He whistled. Mm-hmm. So what? That didn't give him the right to kill him. That's the whole point. Right. I said, and maybe Isn't it quite interesting frankly, how these stories sometimes come down to these little things that are totally insignificant, but somehow mm-hmm. people get attached to that. Right. Right. And think and somehow said, that's enough to have started something. Yeah. So and she said, you know, Clonora, I said, Mamie, let me tell you this. You keep saying that Emmett allegedly whistled. Emmett is probably turning over in his grave saying, Mom, I whistle. It didn't make me a bad boy. You're probably saying, and she said, I know, of course it didn't make him a bad boy. I said, you got to stop saying that. Because what you're saying is that he was lynched because of an error. Mm-hmm. They made a mistake. They thought he whistled. You're saying he just, that's the way he, he was taught to whistle out a word because he had a speech impediment. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a mistake. He whistled. Mm-hmm. So stop giving them an excuse for the crime that they committed. That's an interesting way of he looking at it, He was lynched for whistling. Mm-hmm. We all know he whistled. Mm-hmm. The cousins were there, and they verified. And I interviewed them. 
you know, all the whole scenery was set up. There were men on the front porch, you know, playing checkers, and they were like, oh. Mm-hmm. And then uh, 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 the uh, wife fled out, you know, with her pistol and shot and cursed them out and everything. Do you think she just did that? You know, she thought she had a right to, you know, call them all sorts of bad names because he had dared to whistle. Yeah, mm-hmm. he whistled. So let's get beyond that. I can't change it. And she said, well, you know, I hadn't thought of it like that, you see. But at any rate, uh, so I did the dissertation, and uh, I remember um, the... Um, Right before, when I turned the first eight chapters in, we had uh, a meeting with the um, uh, alums who had come there for a conference. Uh, uh, our chair, mm-hmm. uh, Darwin Turner, had brought in the, you know, alumni, and 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 there was Blassingame. John Blassingame at Yale University was there, and uh, I was asked to do my thing on Emmett Till. Mm-hmm. I had just I had just done the opening plenary the month before, well, two months before in October. Uh, 1987 it was. No, that was a year before. 1987, I did the opening plenary at the National Ford Foundation Conference in Washington, D.C. the same day that Condoleezza Rice did the afternoon plenary. Interesting. And John Hope Franklin did the closing plenary. Mm-hmm. How good is that? You know, I was a pre-doc. Pre-docs never did plenaries, but I was right. the first. And so it interesting. was interesting. One of the ladies that I interviewed uh, there uh, for the dissertation, she said, uh, you are our, uh, our uh, uh, post, uh, not post, she said, you're our uh, Ford, uh, uh, you're our Ford legend. That's never <laughs> happened. <laughs> it was cute, you know. So what, so what do you see in your, in your classes with kids coming on now who, who come to you with something that they've been dreaming about, that they want to write about, that they want to investigate, that they want to take further to the next place. Are you, are you seeing that kind of enthusiasm? Oh, yes. I, you know, it's students, uh, you know, that's, that's the way it always is. You know, we, we come to uh, school and, and we start those uh, balls to roll in our heads and we start thinking of things, great things, and, and we get out there and do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, you just have to keep encouraging them to keep doing it. What you have to do is sometimes stimulate them. Mm-hmm. I try, my classes close uh, doing pre-registration every semester, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's, I feel good. Because that means that uh, they're happy to be there. They know how, I, they know I have a passion. I care for them. I want them to be successful. I want them to be thinkers and, and to be successful. Mm-hmm. So it's not about uh, me in the front pontificating and lecturing. I said it's a call and response scenario here. I call and you respond. Mm-hmm. We read the anthology for the uh, African uh, diaspora classes call and response that really endorsed my uh, African womanism heavily. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I said, and if you don't respond, I, I will have you to pull out the uh, pencil and pad, and, and we could write. Mm-hmm. It's okay. If mm-hmm. you don't want to talk, you know, you can be shy. Okay. I said, but in this classroom, I call. It's not a, it's not a monologue. You respond. And we have a ball. They love it. I don't have to check the role. Yeah. I mean, they're there. You know, uh, and that's the way it should be. I mean, mm-hmm. why should I have to spend all the time checking the role every day? You know, we could be uh, five minutes down the way right. with some ideas, right. you know. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. But they come. I said, if they don't come, that means they don't want it. That's on them. Mm-hmm. You know, they paid the money. I'm sure that they want to get their money's worth, so they come. But, uh, yeah, uh, it's uh, it's fascinating uh, teaching the students. Uh, I've hooded several PhDs, been on dissertation committees in English uh, in uh higher education and uh, communication. Yeah, I've been in several fields, you know, in history. Yeah. I've uh, served on committees, and I remember serving on the one in higher education for the student 
who's from, she did her, uh, she's from, she's from uh, Greece, and she did her master's thesis uh, as a transcription, a translation mm-hmm. of my African Womanism Reclaiming Essay as the first book that I wrote on, uh, which is now So a she part translated into Greek? Into Greek. Interesting. So and, I'm wondering how the how the language and the and the illustrations change yeah. going from yeah. English to Greek. Or yeah, yeah, It'd be interesting. Mm-hmm. I probably wouldn't know. <laughs> I don't. Uh, Greek was not <laughs> one of my languages. <laughs> not one of mine either. But I'm I'm just imagining. But it was interesting mm-hmm. uh, when we got ready to sign off, and I said, oh, I didn't have my glasses on. Y'all have twenty twenty vision. I forget to bring glasses sometimes, you know, and. I'm getting ready to sign, you know, going to the bottom because, you know, I'm not in higher education. I'm in English. Mm-hmm. And I said, you, you forgot to put my name here. And the chair said, Clonora, your name is there. It's right under mine. I'm the chair of the department <laughs> in this committee. He right. said, but uh, you are very, very uh, prominent in this dissertation. In fact, that's why she gave you a whole, when she did acknowledgement, you got a whole paragraph and we got one sentence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's... Well, uh, that's it, an honor. Yeah, it's that's really good. Honor. And so she did that. Uh, she, um, oh, it's just it's just incredible. Uh, the students I've had, I don't care what their color is or anything. In fact, uh, I was very pleased um, uh, when I signed, finally signed the contract with, uh, uh, with um, what's the name of it? Rutledge Press mm-hmm. that's coming out. Rutgers, yeah. No, Rutledge. Rutledge, I'm sorry, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Rutledge is very international. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, what I like about it is, uh, and, and of course my editor's in England, mm-hmm. uh, headquarters I guess in New York, but they are they are very much into the international thing. Right. And they knew about my work too, you know, before. And so I was. I had another book for them called Africana Melanated Womanism. Mm-hmm. And uh, the lady called me. She said, you know, we're trying to get your first book. We got the Africana Womanist Literary Theory, but we can't. That was your second book in 2004. Your first one in 2000 and, um, and uh, I'm sorry, 1993. Mm-hmm. It's selling for nearly $5,000 on <laughs> online. And uh, could you send us a couple of copies, you know? So I had to get that together and send them a couple of copies. She said... And I said, but I'm going to get it. I'm talking to a couple of uh, publishers now to have it reprinted. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we came up with the thing with Rutgers, or Rutledge rather, that they would take that and call it a reprint. Mm-hmm. They don't traditionally do just reprints like that. It has to have right. a significant uh, amount of new materials. Mm-hmm. I said, and then we could fold into it some of those seven chapters in the new book that you have called Africana Melanated Womanism. It has evolved. So the first book was part one, uh, theory, and part two, application of theory to the text, to five African women's novels. Well, I got a part three now, and mm-hmm. it's called From African Womanism to African Melanated Womanism. Do you see that? What's the bridge there? Well, the evolution. Uh, there are so many people, and I speak in and out of the country. I was at the University of Hamburg, for example, with Riverton. Uh, as well as, you know, several places in uh, Africa and in, uh, you know, Canada. Mm-hmm. Believe it or not, I did an open and plenary Guelph University. It was something. African womanism for, uh, you know, up in uh, Canada for Women's History Month. Oh, yeah. Why not? They love it. Why not? You know, and so my thing is, um, what I'm saying is that I have women uh, from different, all over the world and, uh, you know, Italy, you know, uh, you know, let's say just, uh, just say Europe. Uh, you're talking about Asians. 
you're talking about uh, Indians, mm-hmm. uh, that is uh, East Indians, as well as you know Canadians and African Americans and Caribbeans and all that. Uh, there's a whole lot of, of, of emphasis on my work at the University of uh, Rio de Janeiro, for mm. example. Uh, in fact, in uh, Rio de Janeiro, they're translating my works into Portuguese, which is the original language there. Yeah, wonderful. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and there are people who are not necessarily of African descent. Mm-hmm. This is interesting because my producer, and you, by the way, you favor him a lot, Barry Merrill wrote Rain Man. Okay. Okay, you see a picture of him, you know, yeah, we do play role. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Okay. <laughs> anyway, uh, so it's interesting because Barry and I were interviewed out of New York. I was in New York, but mm-hmm. we called him, you know, on the West Coast. And he said, oh, by the way, Clonora, before we get started, my wife wants me to tell you that African womanism is not just for black women, it's for all women. I said, how well I know that. Well, there you go. How well I know mm-hmm. that. I said, because, I, I mean, I, you know, so I have uh, some white women, for example, who've endorsed my books. One of them was the chair of African, chair of English. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's from, um, oh, God, someplace, you know. Uh, it's not Australia, but another predominantly white area. Mm-hmm. And she said that for uh, 20 years she had used my theory as a template upon which to erect her syllabi. Mm-hmm. Very renowned woman. She's a, Interesting. She was an international, um, uh, uh, what is it? Uh, she was um, a Zordon Hairstonian. Sonia Hurston, she'd written two books on Hurston. Uh-huh. And I was uh, at a conference in Utah, and she walked up and introduced herself to me. And uh, when she gave me her name, because I didn't know her by face, you know, and she said, uh, when she said her name, I said, oh, I know you, you know, at work, you know. Naturally, I love Zonia right. Hurston, you know. Well, interesting. So it just goes on and on like that. Um, so you started a wave, didn't you? Mm-hmm. It was just, it, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's all over. I, I really am very pleased because a lot of women say that they uh, they find the African womanism um, more akin to their level of struggle mm-hmm. because they're family-centered. See, traditional feminism, and we have to realize this, traditional feminism was gender exclusivity. Mm-hmm. That's a fact. Mm-hmm. All you got to do is to look at what, I didn't say it, I'm only quoting Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, and you know that because it was family. It was uh, female centered, female empowerment. Mm-hmm. African womanism is family centered, family uh, and, and uh, race empowerment. You mm-hmm. see the difference. Mm-hmm. We deal with the prioritization of race, class, and gender. Uh, and traditional feminism was gender exclusivity. Um, all you have to do is to look at uh, some of the earlier writers, uh, like for example, um, what's her name? Uh, you. Did I bring her? Uh, her name is, uh, and I don't want to get off into that. Excuse me. Right. But her name, and this is in the first book, uh, her name is um, Carrie Chapman Cat. I'm trying to find her. There she is. She made the statement that, uh, well, she insisted on strong Anglo-Saxon values and white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm going to quote her to let you know this is not me talking. Right. This comes from the uh, the the history book by uh, Peter Carroll and David Noble, called uh, "The Free and the Unfree." She says there is but one way to avert the danger: cut off the vote of the slums and give it to us, meaning white women. She said, "To women, it meant white women." Mm-hmm. Then she goes on, and she says that the uh, the white men. Uh, the middle-class white men must recognize the, she says, quote, usefulness of woman suffrage 
as a counterbalance to the foreign vote and as a means of legally preserving white supremacy in the South. Now, I didn't say that. Mm -hmm. You see the quote? I see the and quote. And the page. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm saying that... That wasn't very nice of her. Now, I'm saying, let's be for real. Mm -hmm. And we know the things that uh, uh, Susan B. Anthony said. You know, how about you'd rather give up a lamb than a supporter mm -hmm. black. You know what I'm saying? My thing it is... It gets complicated, doesn't it? Of course it, it does. It gets complicated. So I'm saying that black women... We had our own struggle. Mm -hmm. uh, they have called Sedona Truce uh, an on our woman oration, a feminist manifesto, the feminist manifesto. I said, that, mm -hmm. is, that is not the feminist manifesto, farthest thing from, the, from uh, uh, reality. I said, this lady is dealing with self-actualization. She does exactly what I do. She's prioritizing race, class, and gender because before she can begin to deal with the absurdity of female subjugation, you know what she's dealing with? The race factor. Mm -hmm. That an on our woman said, you know, she is gathered in the barn and no man can head her and ain't our woman. You know, she was cohorse, workhorse with the black man. Uh -huh. That uh, uh, she's buried all these kids and seen them almost all sold in slavery. And when she cried, none but Jesus heard and ain't our woman. Yeah. You know, and, you know, all this stuff that she says, uh, it has to do with race and class first for her. Mm -hmm. You know, that... Uh, that, you know, they say the woman has to have, the white woman has to have, the, uh, be helped over ditches and over mud puddles and they have the best place everywhere. And ain't our woman, nobody ever gave me that. Now, what is she dealing with? Is mm -hmm. it gender? No. Right. It's not until the end of the oration, she says, and then that little man in there. Black, hmm. He says, women can't have as much rights as men because Christ wanted a woman. Where did your Christ come from? <laughs> right. Where did your Christ come from? Well, That's after the fact. Mm -hmm. Am I right? So, so we have it gets very it. interesting, it doesn't does. it? It mm -hmm. gets very interesting. And I think that's a wonderful point to, to pause for the moment because the <laughs> intersection of all these things uh, is great for a, a tall cup of coffee or a large glass of beer because <laughs> it gets very complicated. Yes. What do you do for sales training? When sales training is so frustrating and seems so counterproductive sometimes, right? Because the people getting trained are sometimes resistant or sometimes they've been through so many training courses where they just tune out everything you say and you sound like the teacher in Charlie Brown. Sometimes the people doing the training are so frustrated because they come up with some really good material and go out in the field and prove some really good phraseology and techniques and approaches. And then when they try to train it, sometimes it doesn't work in reality the way it, it worked for them or it doesn't work for the particular people doing it or the folks who get the training just don't feel like putting in the time to perfect it. It's really frustrating for the trainers. It's also really frustrating for the higher-ups, for the big bosses, because they invest in training and they invest in training materials. And sometimes the numbers don't move, and so they wonder, well, why are we doing this? What's the point? So I've come up with a couple different approaches for sales training that maybe are helpful. One idea is to make it a self-driven process where the salesperson is on their own sales journey, their quest for sales proficiency, their quest to be their own sales hero. So if you want to check that out, go to solvingsales.com.
Sales.com. That's all about my self-driven sales journeys program. And you can subscribe to that for, I think right now it's $5 a month. I'm making it super easy so people can get in there and start creating their own journey to sales mastery. SolvingSales.com. SolvingSales.com. Thank you.